everybody. Welcome to Monday Night Psych... Wait, what? <laughs> Monday Night Psych, psych Night. <laughs> Monday Night Psych Night. Uh, we are some psychology students, all of us, yeah. at, mm-hmm. at NSU in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Um, I'll start uh, with introductions. My name is Ian. Uh, I am a senior uh, about to go into the master's program here at NSU. Um, I guess that's all I have to say right now, just name and... Um, I'm Haley, and I'm a freshman, and I'm going to be majoring in psychology. Sweet. Uh, I'm Alejandro. I'm a junior here at NSU. I'm studying forensic psychology, so I hope to get a doctorate in that. Um, I'm Gianna. Um, I'm also a psych major here at NSU, and I also plan on studying forensic psychology. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about Wilhelm Wundt. I read this book called The Transformation of Psychology, and it just goes over a little bit about why why do we know who Wundt is, but we don't know anything besides the fact that he has a laboratory. Uh, so he lived from 1832 to 1920. His approach to psychology was mostly forgotten in the early 1900s for various reasons, which I'm about to get into. So the big issue for Wundt was he could never find an effective experimental technique for the concept of memory. There was a lot of, lot of argument about how can memory be studied if there are so many um, definitions of the word memory. There's so many faculties that memory could entail. And so what Wundt did was he came up with what he calls memory proper. And so he called memory proper the ability to reproduce a set of conscious contents. One of the ways he would try to operationalize memory was he would present like an event to somebody and then he would ask if they recalled it. And then Ebbinghaus, he, his idea of memory proper was mere retention. And if you ever heard of the list of nonsense syllables that he did, what he would do is he would give people a long list of syllables and they're all just random, nonsensical. He would count how many entries people could remember and that was his way of making memory this thing that was operationalized. And so that was very useful for people in educational institutions and pedagogics in general. Wundt had some reservations about what could count as memory within a scientific psychology. Because when you say memory, we think of so many different things. I could say, do I remember what a face looks like? Do I remember what something sounds like? Is it not even a sensory memory? Do I remember a piece of information? Other people realized people wanted to know more about memory. Whether or not they could operationalize it well, people in the late 19th century were super interested in how to work with memory and put it into schools and stuff and make it useful to study. Ebbinghaus, he said it's, it's the ability to reproduce anything objective. So if I give you a bunch of things to remember, the way we'll know how well you remember that is by counting how many things you remember. It might sound kind of obvious now that that's one way to do it, but the, the issue with Wilt was he just didn't think it was scientific enough, and there was a lot of debate about that sort of thing. I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts about that? <laughs> it's all right if not. <laughs> so he focused, like, on work with short-term memory? Is that way kind of like what he studied? Well, he studied anything he had his hands on. The The premise of the, the chapter I read was he wasn't willing to study what the people were interested in because he didn't believe it could be studied in a scientific way. Okay, so he just kind of did what he wanted to do. So, like, even his, his students, like, kind of, you know, had issues with him. That's why you always hear about his lab, but you never hear about his work, and it's because... He was stubborn in some sense. One of his arguments is that in science, 
there can't be a term that is both descriptive and explanatory. What that means is there are theories to explain things, and then there's a description of what happens. And with memory, his argument was, if you're saying there's some memory faculty in the brain that we're studying, how can that be a description and an explanation at the same time? Why do we have memory? We have a memory faculty in the brain. It doesn't add anything to our understanding of memory. It says that he's the founder of experimental psychology, but then it also says that he didn't really try or achieve any applications outside the laboratory. Right. Like, he didn't do that much, but he did do, you know, enough. <laughs> Yeah, I think the reason why he gets that title, because he'll, he'll even be called the first psychologist sometimes, and yeah, the reason he gets that title is just because of that laboratory. You know, he had a lot of famous students. In the late 1800s, he made a textbook, and then he refused to comment on memory, so for 15 years, it was the psychology textbook for anybody interested in psychology as a science. It was William James who published a book only 16 years after Wilhelm's, and he devoted 50 pages to memory and didn't talk about Wundt's work at all. Mm. Which, that's interesting in its own, like, its own sense. Because I think I saw on here it said he didn't use facts, or, like, he wouldn't use, like, the terminology, for, like, needed for it. That's probably one of the more interesting points in this whole chapter, is this idea that language was a really big issue in the early days of psychology, because, it's like, I mean, it still kind of is today, but I think we've had enough experience. Psychologists over time have had enough experience to realize you can operationalize things even if you don't have a set definition. To this day, we still don't know exactly what memory means. One sentence that defines memory, but we do know that figuring out how many words a person can remember before they need to practice again to remember it completely, something like that. Those kinds of things are super useful, and despite the fact that maybe we don't have a perfect scientific understanding of memory yet, we have an understanding of a lot of things that have to do with memory because of people willing to operationalize a definition before having a concrete definition. Another point I wanted to add, the book I read, it, it mentions how this younger generation of psychologists hold no qualms with everyday psychological language. And as far as where we're at with memory these days, there was a talk given by Ewald Herring, and he addressed the Imperial Academy of Sciences in Vienna, and he says, memory is a universal function of organized matter. Since then, that kind of idea has been expanded on, so have you guys ever heard the concept of biological memory. It's Vaguely, like, yeah. It's essentially the idea that memory is a principle, not just a function that happens. And the way that, like, if you exercise your muscles, your muscles get bigger, and your muscles remember that they exercised. Basically, the understanding of, of our faculty of memory these days is that as an extension of that basic principle of biology, which is that it remembers things and is affected by outside influences. All right, for our second topic of the podcast, we're talking about Ronald Clark O'Brien, a.k.a. the Candyman or the man who killed on Halloween. Ronald Clark was born on October 19, 1944, and he was an American man convicted of killing his eight-year-old son, Timothy, on October 31, 1974, with a potassium cyanide-laced pixie stick that was ostensibly collected during a trick-or-treat outing. O'Brien poisoned his son in order to claim life insurance money to ease his own financial troubles. He was $100,000 in debt. He also tried to poison his daughter and three other children in an attempt to cover up his crime. However, neither his daughter nor the other children ate the poisoned candy. He was convicted of capital murder in June 1975 and sentenced to death, and he was executed by lethal injection in March 1984.
A little bit of background about Ronald is he lived with his wife, Danine, in Deer Park, Texas with their son, Timothy, and daughter, Elizabeth. O'Brien worked as an optician at Texas State Optical in Sharpstown, Houston. He was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church where he sang in the choir and ran a local bus program. Seems like all the bad guys have a little church background or like a good father background. Oh, yeah, he was probably just looked at as like a normal guy. A normal guy, kind of like BTK. Mm-hmm. Um, like, a, like a Christian man wouldn't do nothing wrong. Yeah, like Dennis Rader <laughs> was the lead of his church, and he was his son's like Boy Scout leader, had a normal job. Hey, BTK had a whole separate life, and I feel like we see that a lot in serial killers. They like to hide like who they were, you know, mm-hmm. like they're true inside. They're really good at covering up. Yeah, like a, like a psychopath, they can have normal jobs. They can yeah. be a normal person in the society, and no one will ever know until they get caught. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like, what's his face? Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy, mm. yes. Ted Bundy was a normal dude, handsome guy, charismatic, you know. Killed everyone. <laughs> Killed all the girls. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about the death of Timothy O'Brien. On October 31st, 1974, O'Brien took his two children trick-or-treating in a Pasadena, Texas neighborhood. O'Brien's neighbor and his two children accompanied them. After visiting a home where the occupant failed to answer the door, the children grew impatient and ran ahead to the next home while O'Brien stayed behind. He eventually caught up with the group and produced five 21-inch pixie sticks, which he would later claim he was given from the occupant of the house that had not answered the door. At the end of the evening, O'Brien gave each of his neighbor's two children a pixie stick and one each to Timothy and Elizabeth. Upon returning home, O'Brien gave the fifth pixie stick to a 10-year-old boy whom he recognized from his church. Before bed, Timothy asked to eat some of the candy he collected, and according to Ronald, he chose the pixie stick. Timothy had trouble getting the powdered candy out of the straw, so O'Brien helped him loosen the powder. After after tasting the candy, Timothy complained that it tasted bitter. O'Brien then gave his son Kool-Aid to wash the away the taste. Timothy immediately began to complain that his stomach hurt and ran to the bathroom where he began vomiting and convulsing. O'Brien later claimed he held Timothy while he was vomiting and the child went limp in his arms. Timothy O'Brien died en route to the hospital less than an hour after consuming the candy. Timothy's death from poisoned Halloween candy raised the fear in the community. Numerous parents in Deer Park and the surrounding area turned in candy their children got from trick-or-treating to the police fearing it was laced with poison. The police did not initially suspect O'Brien of doing any wrongdoing until Timothy's autopsy ruled the pixie stick he had consumed was laced with a fetal dose of potassium cyanide. Four out of the five pixie sticks O'Brien claimed to have received were recovered by the authorities from the other children, none who had consumed the candy. The parents of the fifth child became hysterical when they could not locate the candy after being notified by the police. The parents rushed upstairs to find their son asleep holding the unconsumed candy. The boy had been unable to open the staples that sealed the wrapper shut. All five of the pixie sticks have been opened with the top two inches refilled with cyanide powdered and resealed with a staple. According to a pathologist who tested the pixie stick, the candy consumed by Timothy contained enough cyanide to kill two adults, while the other four candies contained enough to kill three to four adults. That's not a lot. Hang on, how do you say? He, with the top two inches of it refilled with cyanide powder. So, like, that much mm-hmm. could kill, like, three to four three people. Three to four adults, yeah. And what's also sad is that his son, like, said, you know, like, it tastes bitter and, like, that's one of the main things mm-hmm. of cyanide is that it's bitter and his it's crazy like ronald knew like that yeah. this is dad like you know you're supposed to take care of your kids and mm-hmm. 
and you know doing it for money like that's just yeah it's a crazy thing and he gave him kool-aid kool-aid to, to wash, wash it down, down. Yeah. yeah like that just so he wouldn't like spit it back up so he yeah. would get it in his system and it was almost like you know like the parent instinct in a way because you know like oh like when your kid takes medicine you know you want to give him something after it to mm-hmm. make you know the taste go away and that just i just thought that was kind of crazy that he did that yeah, and something I thought was interesting was, you know, when Ronald was talking to the police, he said that Timothy had, like, reached for the pixie stick himself. But, like, do you guys think he actually reached for that, or do you think, like, I Ronald think, influenced him to take that? I think later on it says that, like, the mother watched, like, um, O'Brien give the pixie stick to him. I think if that's... It's been a minute since I've read this. But I think it does say that somewhere. I just think it's interesting that he chose to do it this way. It seems like something that's, like, super sneaky and, like, oh, they're never going to find out. But, like, they're obviously going to take your child to the morgue and try to figure out what killed mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. And they're going to figure out it was cyanide. And then they're going to know he was poisoned. He could have literally, like, gone to, like, a restaurant that just mopped, take away the wet floor sign, and just slipped and fell. And he would have gotten a lot of money. He could have done it that way yeah. instead of killing his children and trying to kill four other kids along exactly, with it. Yeah. I think the problem was that his entire plan was revolving around the fact of, like, the kids had to eat the pixie stick. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when that failed, ultimately, like, he was screwed because his plan wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know, just the whole thing's crazy, but it is interesting looking at it from, like, a psychological standpoint and from, like, a criminal justice standpoint. Like, he waited until the end of the night to give them all the pixie sticks. So, like, why wouldn't he have just given it to him as soon as he got back? Like, hey, the man at the door gave me this to give to you guys. Instead of, like, being suspicious and holding on to it until the end of the night and being like, hey, here's all the candy that I got from that guy. Mm-hmm. I also think it's weird how he um, stapled them back together because, like, Pixie sticks are so easy to just rip open, you know? Mm-hmm. He could have, like, put a little glue on there, but he put a staple. Like, a little kid's not going to be able to yeah. pull a staple out, you know? I'm assuming they're, like, the really long ones that are made of, like, the plastic, you know? Oh, I like think, the big Yeah, I think, I think it said... Mm-hmm, they're the big ones. The, yeah. They were the 21 oh, yeah, okay, like, well, the, the, the yeah. long ones that made of plastic. I thought they were, the little ones. Up. Then I was like, okay, well, that don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you put a staple... Yeah, and I think they are stapled, right? Like that's how they like the factory does it, right? Or do they? No, or do they melt? Stapled. They're like melted. Stuff. Okay, yeah. and then you cut it. Cut it. Yeah, then yeah. Because yeah. those things, the big ones are hard to open on their mm-hmm. own. Yeah. Like they're they're pretty tough. Okay. Yeah. So you gotta have like scissors to get them. But like, yeah, he stapled it just. There was no way a kid was gonna get that open on his own. So I mean, like the parents that rushed and like found their son asleep, extremely lucky in that situation. Yeah. Because I think his was enough to kill three or four adults. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's just crazy. And, like, I'm sure what he did was, like, whenever he, like, put the top two, like, inches full of it, I don't think he shook it up either. I think he mm-hmm. just left it like that so they would just get cyanide and mm-hmm. not even just the candy. Just pure cyanide. Yeah. yeah. Just horrible. So then that made me kind of think about it is, so would we consider O'Brien as, like, sadistic in a sense, seeing as, like, he chose, you know, for this to happen, and then, like, I don't know what, the reason why I thought he was, like, sadistic was, like, when his son was, like, it doesn't taste right, and, like, it's hard to go down, he was, like, oh, here, let me just give you some Kool-Aid real quick to mm-hmm. make it go down easier. Would you guys consider him sadistic, or just, I don't know, just wanting money, and... I think it was more of just a wanting money thing, because he's not a true sadist in a way, because... 
he's not like a serial killer. Like he didn't do he this did, to he didn't do it to a different child because he wouldn't have gotten the money if he did yes, it to some like other he, kid. It, this was like a whole money scheme plan. Like, like he, he only did it because he, he did needed this money. For life insurance, you know. And he was gonna blame it on the, the man that never answered the door that gave them the pixie sticks. Yeah. So he was trying to you know but get away. If his intent was to cover it up with other kids also dying, will that also contribute to the possibility of him being sadistic? Because his intention, he had every intention of all those kids dying. Yeah. To cover it up. Well, to clarify, like, definition of sadistic is, like, he likes seeing other people in pain, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess not necessarily sadistic is the right term, but... He's definitely, I mean, complete lack of empathy. Like, I mean, you imagine oh, yeah. seeing your kid yeah. poison mm-hmm. and you... It's more than you could even handle thinking about. Like, it's, like, and he's just so casual about it. Gets him a drink, you know. It's yeah, so, like, I know the internet hasn't said anything, but just, like, based on that alone, like, wanting to hurt your child, that obvi- there obviously has to be something wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you, like, no person just wants to do that because they just want to do that, you know. They, like, mm. there's obviously something that went on in his head, and he obviously had to think about it for a long time because he's, like, well, he had to make up a plan, and he's like, okay, Halloween, when the pixie sticks get candy from Halloween, they wouldn't be able to figure out who it was because the whole neighborhood was going to be passing out candy. And didn't he, like, start taking out money or, like, upping their insurance or... Mm-hmm. It's, like, later on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot, like, during that time, like, when was this, the 80s, right? Or yeah, 70s, around 70s, 80s. 70s. In the 70s. Yeah. Like, that was kind of, like, a big kind big of, ordeal. you know, way to kill someone was, like, the in- for the insurance, the money, I feel like. Maybe not. I feel like I've heard a lot of, like, insurance <clears throat> deaths. O'Brien initially told police that he could not remember which house he got the pixie sticks from. Police became suspicious because O'Brien and his neighbor had only taken their children to homes on two streets because it had been raining. Their suspicions increased after learning that none of the homes they visited had given out pixie sticks. After walking the neighborhood with police three times, O'Brien led them to the home where no one had answered the door. O'Brien claimed that he went back there before catching up with the group. He said the owner of the home did not turn the lights on, but did crack the door open and hand him five pixie sticks. He claimed to have only seen the man's arm, which he described as hairy. The home was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin. Melvin was an air traffic controller at William P. Hobby Airport and did not get home from work until 11 p.m. on Halloween night. Police ruled Melvin out as a suspect when over 200 people confirmed that he had been at work. As their investigation progressed, police learned that Ronald O'Brien was over $100,000, equivalent to about $590,000 in 2022, uh, in debt, and had a history of being unable to hold a job. In the 10 years preceding the crime, O'Brien had held 21 jobs. At the time of his arrest, he was suspected of theft at his job at Texas State Optical and was close to being fired. His car was about to be repossessed. He had defaulted on several bank loans and the family home had been foreclosed on. Police discovered that O'Brien had taken out life insurance policies on his children in the months preceding Timothy's death. In January 1974, he had taken out $10,000 life insurance policies on both of his children. One month before Timothy's death, O'Brien took out an additional $20,000 policies on both children, despite the objections of his life insurance agency. In the days preceding Timothy's death, O'Brien had taken out yet another $20,000 policy on each child. The various policies totaled approximately $60,000, which would be about $356,000 today. O'Brien's wife maintained that she did not know about the insurance policies on her children's lives. 
Police also learned that on the morning after Timothy's death, O'Brien had called his insurance company to inquire about collecting the policies he had taken out on his son. After learning that O'Brien had visited a chemical supply store in Houston to buy cyanide shortly before Halloween 1974, he left without purchasing anything after learning the smallest amount available to purchase was five pounds. Police began to suspect that Ronald O'Brien had laced the candies with poison in an effort to kill his children to collect their life insurance policies. They believed he gave the other children children poison candy in an effort to cover up his crime and police were repeatedly questioned O'Brien but he maintained his innocence. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> so O'Brien's not very smart. I don't know. He was trying to be though, but he really failed. Apparently like five times over at least. There was so many points of error there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He must have he must have thought that you needed large doses of potassium cyanide to kill someone because he said that he left without purchase anything because, like, the smallest amount was five pounds. So he thought he probably thought, oh, I probably need, like, 50 pounds to kill five yeah. kids. So they probably didn't do enough research on it. Mm-hmm. But it's really suspicious just going to a chemical supply store and asking for potassium cyanide shortly before Halloween. That should have, like, yeah. you know... It's also, like, I feel like one of his biggest errors, too, was so after taking out all the insurance policies on his kids, like, immediately after Timothy died, what's he do? Call the insurance company and be like, hey, I want that. I want that little policy right there. You know, I think he he couldn't have waited, like, couple days like a month you know like Like after the funeral you know like like a grieving father yeah you're supposed to you know he didn't even like pretend like didn't even try to portray Mm -hmm. the grieving father you know i mean because from the get-go it's all been about motive i mean he's he knew what he wanted and he knew that you know he had to do some pretty horrible things to get what he wanted so is he trying to pay off his debt that's what he's trying to do. So, I mean, like here, it gives us, so in that paragraph, uh, as their investigation progressed, it kind of gives us the motive. Um, like it states that he hasn't been able to hold a job for the last 10 years. He had 21 jobs. And at the time of him being arrested, like he was about to get fired from his other job for stealing, um, just trying to pay off some of his debts. And then, like, his... He had defaulted on several bank loans. The family home had been foreclosed on. And so, like, that's kind of, like, the, the like, why he needed to do it was he was in a lot of trouble to begin with. Desperate. Super mm-hmm. desperate. Like, I mean, he was struggling. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, in his mind, I don't think he saw any other, like, way out of it. Yeah. Well, are we sure that he was trying to fix that? Because he's obviously um, not somebody who's, like, super responsible and so it's possible he was trying to get some money to go and get off the grid or something i mean yeah it's entirely possible i mean we don't know exactly what Mm -hmm. you know all he was involved in Mm -hmm. so i mean for all we know he could have just been wanting the money because he's a greedy Uh, greedy guy and just wants to 21 jobs tells me like this is not responsible yeah Yeah. irresponsible um probably disrespectful probably lazy um and I assume there's more going on that we could learn about, like as far as mental health issues. And yeah, I would love to do like a mental health deep dive of him and see what we could find. Yeah, well, and it's interesting too because like it kind of shows him, like shows us, like the the cause and effect, you know, thought process going on in his brain. Mm-hmm. Um, like 
the cause, if I kill my son and my daughter, then the effect is I will get all this money. So, I mean, that's why he put so much effort to try to cover it up. But like we said, he was an idiot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't do it in a logical and smart way. Mm-hmm. I also liked how you included, like, how much like how much he was in debt is equivalent to like, yeah, in today's in, year. In the 70s, like, $100,000 is like... It's almost $600,000 today. Today. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that to us is like... Uh, that's mm-hmm. a really nice house. Like, mm, yeah. you could get a good house, still be in debt, but, you know. But then it's just crazy. Like, he, like in today's society, like, in 2023, like, that's... It's a lot of money, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know, because inflation all that. But back then, like, he was like, oh, like, I know. Yeah, it was just a lot. I just mm-hmm. thought that was crazy how how much money it was. Did it say much about his partner, or if he even has one? No, he has a wife, but it really didn't. I think it's, like, it talks about, like, um, I know she filed for divorce after that, and she got remarried, and then the husband adopted Emil, or Elizabeth. Yeah, I mean, she claimed that she had nothing to do with it, mm-hmm. and, I mean, she was proven innocent. Yes. But she claimed, like, she had no idea that the life insurance policies had been taken out on her kids. Like, she didn't know any of it. So that makes me think that she wasn't even, like, included on their like Pro- insurance yeah, policy. Yeah, because I think isn't there like ways where you can like. There's see ways. That? Yeah, yeah, there's ways where you, well, you get notified whenever you take a life insurance mm-hmm. policy out on somebody. Unless it was just like under his name and like he didn't like give her like any of the information on like how to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Which, but you mean at the same point is you got to think was like did he just tell them that his wife wasn't on board because they said like it said like they kept telling him like hey you shouldn't be taking out like life insurance policy on your kids like you're, you're coming here like all the time and you're doing it like you shouldn't there's no reason for you to mm-hmm. surprised that didn't like trigger anything fly, or like yeah, yeah or like flag them you know but also you gotta think of like that was you know in the 70s like they weren't thinking of all that yeah you know but now like if someone did all that they're like immediately police on them yes fbi whoever like they're gonna be like oh they're gonna kill whoever they took that insurance out on. I would also like to know, like, I don't know, just how his wife was feeling during all this, because just imagine, like, your like your husband, right. the father of your kids, killing them. He's mm-hmm. either, he's either like, super good at being deceptive, which I would imagine he's not, because he can't keep up a job, unless yeah. he's just super lazy. Maybe people liked him, but he was lazy. Uh, or... Uh, the wife would have had to been negligent to some yeah, degree. Yeah, and you know, like, everyone just saw him as a good Christian man who was a mediocre dad, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, nothing suspicious about that. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder why he was in debt. Like, I'm trying to... I don't see where it says, like, why he was in debt. Maybe because he couldn't keep a job, maybe? and Probably that's could, and just, job, you know, having to feed family. Yeah, they had two kids. Mortgage. I bet you had some kind of irresponsible hobby. Yeah, I'm sure. Probably gambling. Gambling, like drinking. Yeah, during the 70s, that would have been huge. Yeah, gambling mm-hmm. and drinking. Yeah. Although police never discovered when or where O'Brien bought the poison, he was arrested for Timothy's murder on November 5th, 1974. He was indicted on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. O'Brien entered a plea of not guilty to all five counts. O'Brien's trial began in Houston on May 5, 1975. During the trial, a chemist who was acquainted with O'Brien testified that in summer 1973, 
O'Brien contacted him, asking about cyanide and how much would be fatal. A chemical supply salesman also testified that O'Brien had asked him how to purchase cyanide. Friends and co-workers testified that in months before Timothy's death, O'Brien showed an unusual interest in cyanide and spoke about how much it would take to kill a person. O'Brien's sister-in-law and brother-in-law testified that on the day of Timothy's funeral, he spoke of using the money from Timothy's insurance policy to take a long vacation and buy other items. As well, his wife rejected the claim that Timothy chose the pixie sticks, stating that O'Brien had, in fact, forced him to choose the sticks. O'Brien continued to maintain his innocence. His defense mainly drew upon the decades-old urban legend concerning a mad poisoner who hands out Halloween candy laced with poison or needles, or candy apples with razor blades inserted. These stories have persisted despite the fact that there are no documented instances of strangers poisoning Halloween candy. The case and subsequent trial garnered national attention and the press dubbed O'Brien the Candyman. On June 3, 1975, a jury took 46 minutes to find O'Brien guilty of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. The jury took 71 minutes to sentence him to death by electrocution. Shortly after he was convicted, his wife filed for divorce. She later remarried and her new husband adopted her daughter, Elizabeth. Wow. So, before the murder, he's talking about cyanide to everybody and their mamas. He is telling them, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, you know how much it takes? Like, I don't know how, like, that didn't spark anything from anybody. Like, hey, like, what's he, he's kind of acting weird. Like, why would you not? I mean, unless he, you know, he's using that cover-up as the deacon of the church and the mm-hmm. choir, family man, like... You know, oh, he, he's probably just, that's his little interest right now, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it was also said that police never discover where he bought it. So he mm-hmm. could have bought it off someone off the street. He could have, like, like, ordered on, like, the black web if that was a thing back in the 70s. A, he could have found a way to make it. I mean. Yeah, you can, that's, like, it's in, like, you can literally. Seeds. seeds, yeah. Yeah, you can literally make that, so. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, but they also didn't have, like, the resources and technology available to actually mm-hmm. locate where he found it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You know, in today's society, they could probably locate that fairly quickly. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, the internet, there's trace everywhere. So no matter where you go, they'll find you. Mm-hmm. But what I found was extremely interesting was the fact that how, like, up until, like, his trial and, like, even, like, the the funeral, like, even before the funeral, he kept saying, like, you know, to him, or like to police, like, oh, this is this was to pay my debts off. But then, like the minute that he's at the funeral, he's like, oh, we're gonna go on this big family vacation. vacation. Yeah. Like yeah, he, his son's not even in the ground yet, and he's like, we're gonna go on a vacation with his money. And how does us. that not immediately be like, oh, he's the killer? Like he did it, mm-hmm. you know? Like he's he was almost like flaunting it in a way, like. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it took 46 minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because like, he obviously didn't have, it. he obviously didn't have, he didn't, like, he didn't have a good alibi. Like, no. There was I mean, nothing he could have said to, like. Well, I mean, his entire alibi got destroyed whenever they questioned um, Courtney Melvin. Mm-hmm. And, like, he was like, I have, like, over 200 people who can confirm my alibi. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. at that point, O'Brien was kind of just stuck. Yeah. And, like, he had no way to prove his innocence. Probably. Like, I'm gonna try to say here. Like, would have been like better off if he, he had w- taken like a plea deal. 
he would have been better off if he didn't like say it was a specific house. Oh yeah, yeah. and said so that he just like someone just gave it to him. Like they didn't like they didn't know where because say that he was like just looking on his phone while his kids were like going around. He didn't know where. Yeah. But then it probably it would have. But then they could have like gone and asked around if like, hey, did you, were you selling pixie sticks this night? Were you you know? Yeah. But it would have. It obviously would have taken a lot longer. But also like they immediately dismissed the Melvin guy because over 200 people mm-hmm. proved that he was at work yeah. like why would you pick him he should have done wasn't, like he should have yeah like just said like one of the houses like he yeah have he should out yeah and then before that like, yeah. he should have like like you know like done research and like you know like who is this guy yeah like, like what would happen if i say it's him mm-hmm. like, like he should have done he should have like picked someone who was actually at home or just say that hey there wasn't any. I don't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. My kid. We gone to like over fifty houses that night. I have no clue where that could have came from. Um, at the time, men sentenced to death under Texas law were confined to the Ellis One unit near Huntsville, Texas, according to Reverend Carol Pickett, a former chaplain who worked for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. O'Brien was shunned and despised by his fellow row inmates for killing his child, and was absolutely friendless. Uh, the inmates reported reportedly petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on O'Brien's execution date to express their hatred of him. O'Brien's first execution date was set for August 8, 1980. Uh, his attorney successfully petitioned for a stay of execution. A second date was scheduled for May 25, 1982. That date was also postponed. Judge Michael McSpadden scheduled a third execution date for October 31st, 1982, the eighth anniversary of the crime, and he offered to personally drive O'Brien to the death chamber. It was to have been the first time Texas executed an inmate by lethal injection. The Supreme Court delayed the date yet again to give O'Brien a chance to pursue an appeal to seek a new trial. A fourth date was scheduled for March 31, 1984. O'Brien's lawyer saw a fourth stay on the basis that lethal injection was a cruel and unusual punishment. On March 28th, a federal judge rejected the request. On March 31st, 1984, shortly after midnight, O'Brien was executed by lethal injection at the Huntsville unit. His last meal consisted of T-bone steak, medium to well done, french fries and ketchup, whole kernel corn, sweet peas, lettuce, and tomato salad with egg and french dressing, iced tea, sweetener, saltines, Boston cream pie, and rolls. O'Brien's last words were, what is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also to anyone I have offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask your forgiveness just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way. And I prayed and asked God's forgiveness for all of us respectively as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts, I love you one and all. God bless you all, and may God's blessings be always yours. Ronald C. O'Brien. P.S. During my time here, I have been treated very well by all TDC personnel. During the execution, a crowd of 300 demonstrators gathered outside the prison cheered while some yelled trick or treat. 
Others showed anti-death penalty demonstrators with candy. Ronald O'Brien is buried in Forest Park East Cemetery in Webster, Texas. Timothy is buried in Forest Park Lawndale Cemetery in Houston. Well, at least he isn't buried by his dad. Yeah. Whoa. That was a lot. Um, first, I think they should have stuck with the the third execution date, which was the eighth anniversary of the crime, because I feel like that would have really done um, Timothy justice. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been like a you know full circle moment, but he was just I can't believe he got out that many times like mm-hmm. of execution. Um, and also that last meal was crazy. Oh like, no, I was no. sitting here, mm-hmm. sitting here just like yep, yep, yep. It's, a lot of, it's kind of a solid last meal. I'm not gonna uh-huh. lie. But I mean, like, like if it's your last meal, go big or go home. Yeah. I guess that's the last meal you're ever gonna eat. Might mm-hmm. as well make your money's worth of it. I guess. And about the eight years thing, his son was eight years old. So that would have been pretty poetic because yeah. he spent mm-hmm. eight years in prison. And I like, and he still, he still thought he was in, he still pled innocent until he, yeah, yeah. like his last words, he said, this is wrong, what you guys are doing is wrong to me, I didn't do anything. But I forgive you all. I forgive you, may God forgive y'all, and I think it's also kind of crazy how, like, he used, like, God in that way, Mm -hmm. like. I thought it was pretty interesting how, um, like, the fellow death row inmates hated him for killing his kid Mm -hmm. and so they literally asked like they petitioned to have an organized demonstration like to watch him die like and i don't know whether or not it got approved or not but it probably got denied because they don't yeah i don't they don't they don't allow that to see that but but there were the 300 people outside Mm -hmm. yeah yelling trick-or-treat and giving candy to the people outside i I think that's very poetic right there Mm -hmm. Trigger tree, candy man. Yep. Yeah, it really comes across that he was very likely extremely manipulative and deceptive. Oh, for sure. From that, just, just last words. Yeah, just yes. by that he was like I said, he's still trying to say that he was innocent and like you guys are you guys are wrong. I'm not. You guys are making a big mistake. That's what I was kind of trying. That was what I was kind of looking for. Like he was using God as a way of like, well, you know, God knows me. Like. Mm-hmm. God's gonna, you know, he'll for he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you for killing me. You know, almost using him as like a, like, like a, a crutch. Yeah, like a crutch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, could we could we classify him as like a narcissist kind of like towards the end of his life or not really? I mean, not necessarily like full narcissist, but like like showing a little bit like it's about me. Like I'm still innocent. Like I think. I or do think you think it's like a last plea to like in general like hiding your guilt and being deceptive or not hiding your guilt hiding hiding the fact that you're guilty and being deceptive i would say that's pretty narcissistic behavior yeah mm-hmm. it's also like he's looking out for himself it's like like you said about god like when he used god it was like almost as just a way to he's not, he's not really talking about god he's saying like the guy who knows what's right knows i'm right mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and it's almost like he's still trying to like prove his innocence is like you know he's the deacon of the church in the like involved in the church so he's using that as like well like you know i'm gonna be up there and like y'all are killing me y'all are doing that and he's trying to like almost like still be like you know god believes me like y'all don't it probably worked like, the way he wanted to too because like i mean even after us reading that like i still like kind of i went from like 
a hundred percent sure to like ninety percent sure. You know, I was like, hmm, you can mm-hmm. put those words together real well. Like, mm-hmm. I think that kind of shows that he's a master manipulator, because, like, also narcissistic in a way, but he's so manipulative. He's still trying to like prove his prove his innocence. He's not innocent, obviously, but. Um, he's just trying to manipulate everyone into like feeling bad for him like you know I didn't do this like God knows I didn't do this when he did he's a dirt alright I guess that's it alright well this has been Monday Night Psych Night have a good rest of your week y'all later gamers Bye. bye bye